G'day humans, welcome to the safe space for dangerous ideas and what idea could be more dangerous than to say I'm sorry, I do not want to participate in this arranged marriage with an Al-Qaeda terrorist. Uh, that's something that uh, today's guest found herself having to do. Well, actually, she had to go through with the marriage after all, but you will learn about that henceforth. Uh, Yasmin Muhammad is a hero, a heroine. Are we, are we saying hero and heroine? If we're not saying actor and actress, are we saying hero and heroine? Anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll search for the memo on that. I'm sure it's here somewhere. Uh, gender, non-specificity on hero, heroine. Uh, yes, heroine's still okay. Good. Not going to be cancelled for that. Excellent. Yasmin is a heroine <clears throat> uh, because she's a protector of women and girls the world over from the tyrannies of fundamentalist Islam. That is, That sounds like an exaggeration, but it's not. She has a charity called Free Hearts, Free Minds and literally helps to smuggle ex-Muslims and LGBTQIA plus Muslims uh, who live in Muslim-majority countries that have death penalties for leaving Islam and so on. She smuggles them out, uh, applies for refugee status in, I was going to say civilized countries, and then I thought that's not very politically correct, but in, in contrast to the countries we're talking about, let's just call a spade a spade, civilized countries, and helps them with psychological counseling and provides them with services uh, to get out of places uh, which are deeply regressive. She also has a, a podcast called Forgotten Feminists, which interviews women about their experiences leaving Islam. Her own personal story is extraordinary. I mean, she was born and raised in Canada, but her story is instructive about how you don't have to be born in some benighted part of the most fundamentalist and uh, backward uh Islamist backwaters to nonetheless feel uh, the pain and suffering and depression and brutality of Stone Age religions being inflicted upon you. It's um, it's not a fun story, but we don't dwell on her personal story too much. I'm really interested in checking back in with her because I spoke with Yasmin on my old podcast. It must be a good seven years ago now about her work. And I want to check back in about how we're all doing especially in the West, in juggling our desire for having vibrant, tolerant, multicultural, multi-ethnic societies that are pluralistic and respectful of religious difference and supportive of our Muslim friends and neighbors, and at the same time, not being too full of shit about the excesses of Islam about how pernicious an effect it can have on people's lives in most of the parts of the world where it is practiced uh, with much less deftness and, uh, and genteelness than it is in the West. Um, and uh, what we should make of the state of terrorism and jihadism and Islamism and Afghanistan and Iraq and what's going on. Anyway, she has a lot of thoughts about a lot of things and it's wonderful. It's just so heartening to hear someone so articulate and so full of passion and life um, on a subject that so few people are interested in touching. Uh, Yasmin really got going after that famous exchange between Ben Affleck, the actor, and Sam Harris, the neuroscientist and now podcaster, uh, on Bill Maher's show. They were debating Islam and specifically whether or not it is racist or bigoted or Islamophobic to criticize the tenets of Islam. Have a listen to some of that exchange. 
Yeah, well, liberals have really failed on the topic of theocracy. They, they, they'll, they'll criticize white theocracy. They'll criticize right. Christians. They'll still get agitated over the abortion clinic bombing that happened in 1984. But when, <laughs> when you want to talk about the treatment of women and homosexuals and free thinkers and, and public intellectuals in the Muslim world, uh, I would argue that li liberals have failed us. And uh, the crucial point of confusion, uh, yeah, well, thank you. Thank God you're here. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, the crucial point of confusion is that, that we have been sold this meme of Islamophobia, where every criticism of the doctrine of Islam gets conflated with bigotry toward Muslims as people. Right. And that is uh, it's, it's intellectually ridiculous. Even it gets so hold on, are you the person who understands the officially codified doctrine of Islam? You're the interpreter uh, well, of that, well, so you well, can say, well, I, this I'm, is... I'm, I think actually, any, I'm actually well-educated well, on this topic. I'm, yeah. I'm asking you. So I mean, you're you, saying, if I criticize, the, you're saying that Islamophobia is not a real thing. That if you're critical of something... It, well, it's not a real thing when we do it. Right. <laughs> well, well, no, it so, really no, isn't. I, I'm not denying not, that, that certain people are bigoted against Muslims as people. That's, right. And that's a that's problem. big of you. But the... But why have, are you so hostile to, about this it's, it's gross. It's racist. It's, it's not. It's, but it's so not. It's, so, it's like saying it's those so statements, not, shifty Jew. You're not listening Absolutely to not. what well, we are saying. You guys are saying, but, if you want to be liberals, believe in liberal principles, right. like freedom of speech, like, right. um, you know, we are endowed by our uh, forefathers with an inalienable life, like all men are created no. equal. No, Ben, we have to be able to criticize bad ideas. And of course we Islam, do. No liberal doesn't okay, want to okay. criticize bad ideas. But Islam but why when, is the mother load of bad ideas. Jesus. So we have, we have That's ideas like blasphemy. No. It is it's a, an ugly apostasy. It is it's basic liberal. But, well, let me unpack it. Tolerant. But Nick, or how about the more than a billion those, people those who are aren't fanatical, Jews. who don't punish well, women, who just want to go to the store? Okay. Wait a second. 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 And you're painting the whole religion with that. No, no. That was Sam Harris and Ben Affleck on Bill Maher's show in 2014. That's almost a decade ago now, and I play it because that was the climate of the time where to we were still in this kind of post 9-11 fervor of like, what can we honestly say and what can't we honestly say about the the plight of people who are living under theocratic Islamist rule? And what can we and can't we say about the danger that jihadists pose to all of the rest of us as well? That has now shifted somewhat. That's changed somewhat. And hearing Yasmin talk about that change is also instructive. I hope you enjoy as much as I do. The always wonderful Yasmin Muhammad. Well, it's lovely to talk to you again. Uh, how have you been in the, I don't know, probably seven or eight years since I... <laughs> last spoke with you what's been going on has it on? been that long wow i don't even know but yeah it must be i mean i left i left the states in 2017 when i had kids and we must have spoken yes. probably when i had we the people live my last show in pro i was probably in new york so probably 2015 or something which believe it or not is eight years now yeah, probably 2016, because that's when I first started my Twitter account and first started going public. So yeah. you must have been one of the very first people that I spoke that, to. That'd be a 2016, 2017 at the latest. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What's the yeah. Uh, What's the evolution been? So, is are things better? I think it's better or worse now. You know, I have to say they're better. And it might be because I'm a hopeless optimist, but I think in some way, well, in some ways they're better, in some ways they're worse. So I think they're better because there's more 
conversation now. Like there's more. In fact, we um, should say what criteria we're using to to determine yeah. whether things are better. Or what, like, what are we ta- what are we talking about here? Well, I when you asked that question, I'll tell you what I what I was responding to. I was responding to the sort of the reason why I started to speak out was because I felt there was so much propaganda from the Islamists and misunderstanding from the West. And so there was the, this whole space in between of people like me who had denounced Islam or reform Muslims whose voices just weren't being heard. All you're hearing was um, from the fundamentalists, essentially from the Islamists, from Muslim Brotherhood, mainly in the U.S., who were selling their propaganda of, you name it, Islam is a religion of peace, ISIS has nothing to do with Islam, hijab is a choice, Islam is the most feminist religion, you know, all of their their tropes that end up getting such traction in the media and people who are not familiar enough as expected, as understood, this isn't a judgment, but just saying like people aren't familiar enough with the religion or with the cultures where the religion reigns. Um, they're believing all of that stuff. So they're, th- they're saying things like, Oh, so those Afghani women are wearing those burqas by choice. They like it. It's their culture. They want to, Oh no, child marriage is they're perfectly fine with it. It's their culture because that's the, uh, the lies that they were sold be fair, I don't hear that so much, but what I do yeah. hear is uh, our, you know, we need to, ha- as multi-ethnic, multicultural societies like Australia and Canada, we need to be welcoming to everybody and we don't want to make f- people feel alienated for not fitting in. And therefore, if they want to wear the veil uh, here, we don't want to dig too much into like why people are wearing the veil abroad or whether or not this is a perfectly free choice. Like there are lots of ways in which our choices aren't free as well. And how much autonomy does a woman who's conforming to impossible beauty standards in the West really have for wearing a bikini at the beach? Uh, in Similarly, in lots of other countries, women are not empowered to choose not to wear a veil or a headdress or a a burqa, but our overarching priority here in the West should be to make them feel completely entitled to do so and to not judge them for that choice. How does that map onto your work? Yeah, so that is a fair statement that I agree with. What I disagree with is this idea that because we want everybody to feel comfortable um, wearing whatever they want to wear, we're going to actually celebrate everything that everybody else wears. So let's go ahead and celebrate the hijab as if it's this empowering clothing instead of admitting the fact that it stems from purity culture, that it stems from modesty culture, that there are women imprisoned and killed all over the planet, including in my country and in your country, well, not imprisoned, but they do get killed um, over hijab and in honor violence and in honor killings. Um, So we have to sort of make a differentiation between saying you're free to wear whatever you want to wear. And that doesn't need to seep into, I'm going to celebrate whatever it is that you're wearing, even if it's religiously ordained clothing that is seeped in misogyny. We don't do the same for fundamentalist Christian clothing. We don't do the same for fundamentalist 
Jewish clothing. We don't do the same for any kind of, of clothing that is forced on an, a group of people. Um, and again, always when this comparison comes up, I have to state that even those comparisons are not fair because no Jewish women or Christian women are being thrown in prison or are being killed over hijab. I mean, I think that what is happening in Iran right now is very, very clear to the whole world that um, this has never been a choice and women have been fighting against it for a very long time. But of course, as soon as they open their mouths, they are risking their lives. So quite often they choose to stay silent. How do you deal with the claim of kind of, I guess, false consciousness where, you know, it sounds, what you're saying sounds close to saying that people who, like a Muslim Australian woman who feels like it is an act of liberation, defiance, feminism, and ownership of herself to wear the veil in public or to wear a burkini to the beach, uh, for, for her, that is an expression of feminism and defiance. And yet you're saying that we shouldn't celebrate that expression of defiance because in other places, other people are being forced to wear that. Isn't so that the fear of not having autonomy or something? There are millions of women that are wearing hijab. We cannot sit here and try and figure out the intentions or the um, forces around every individual woman that's wearing hijab and why she's wearing it, why she's not wearing it. So you're going to tell me that there's some woman in Australia that's wearing it because she feels empowered. I'm going to tell you that there are, for every woman that you think is wearing it because she feels empowered, I could bring you thousands, hundreds of thousands other women who are wearing it because they're being forced into it. Which one of those women's experiences is more valid or which one of these experiences or which one of these women matter to you more? So I think that's the wrong question to be asking. What you need to be asking yourself is this sim this tool of misogyny, this tool of religious patriarchy, do I agree with it? Do I support it? This is something that is the epitome of rape culture. It teaches young girls and it teaches women that, you know, basically perpetuates victim blaming. It tells them you need to cover yourself in order to avoid tempting men who might end up harassing you or raping you. That is the purpose of the hijab. That's one of the purposes of hijab. So what you have to do is you have to look at that objectively and say, is that a message that I agree with? If it's not, don't put it on the cover of your magazine. And if it is, then sure, go ahead and do that. But that's the message that you're sending to the world. We can't pretend just because the women that are being imprisoned or the women that are not being allowed to go to school are in Afghanistan or in Iran or the women that are being locked in their homes or in Saudi Arabia instead of in Australian soil, that doesn't make them any less valid as human beings. That doesn't mean that their lives matter any less. And that doesn't mean that I'm going to you know, make this conversation specifically about women in Australia or women in Canada or women in America, because that's unfair. Women are women, regardless of where they stand geographically on this planet. And this is a global problem, and we have to talk about it globally. You can't pretend that those women rotting in prison 
for decades over hijab don't exist because you don't want them to exist. And so you say, well, here in Australia, that doesn't happen. So therefore, we're going to put hijab on the cover of magazine and pretend that it's empowering. Well, that's a lie. You're lying to yourself and you're betraying feminism. You're betraying liberalism. You're betraying humanism because the truth is that this item of clothing is being forced on women under threat of imprisonment and under threat of death. And we can't pretend that that reality doesn't exist. Uh, the common retort to that, yes, I mean, is, well, uh, is in some places, I mean, some places are terrible dictatorships and, you know, there are sec- terrible secular dictatorships that we've supported in the past as well, like Pinochet's Chile or Sahato's Indonesia uh, or Saddam Hussein in Iraq. Uh, it, you know, we have our fair share of blood on our hands. So, of course, there are there are theocratic regimes as well, and they're going to do their badness in the particular ways in which they do their badness. Um, I, I don't know whether or not there's... How do you? What do you make of the difference, I suppose, between theocracies and the way that they harness the hijab and the veil and misogyny and sexism to oppress women versus, I guess, the more subtle forms of coercion that the hijab can also represent? Like, I mean, where I struggle probably the most, because I think it's an easy cut and dried case to say that, you know, the Iranian regime and the Saudi regime are doing bad stuff. I think the the that more difficult case is in semi-free majority Muslim countries where women ostensibly would not, they wouldn't be jailed, they wouldn't be stoned, they wouldn't be tortured for asserting their rights, but they would have everything that they love stripped from them and they would be excommunicated by their families and it would take an enormous amount of courage to shed the headscarf and go out on your own. And that's trickier because then the Islamist sympathizer can always say there's no coercion involved here. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, we're not yeah, throwing and, in jail for, wear, for for refusing to wear the veil. Yeah, and that's I think that <laughs> I guess it's all on a spectrum. If you th- if those if people think that the only problem with coercing women into doing something is that they could be imprisoned or killed for it, then then that's the argument that they're going to make, which is one that I completely disagree with. Because as you said, not only in more progressive Muslim countries, but even here in the West, you know, in the UK, we have so many examples. In Canada, we have so many examples. In the US, we have so many examples. France, Sweden, the list goes on and on of women who are living in supposedly free countries or girls living in supposedly free countries who are not able to take off the hijab when they choose to take it off as adults. There's a very popular case of a a young woman named Dina Tokyo, who's from the UK. She used to be a hijabi model, one of those modesty models. Um, And when she decided to take off her hijab, she was inundated with death threats and rape threats. And, you know, she has a video on YouTube called the the good, the bad, and the ugly, or, or something like that, where she, for 45 minutes, just reads through all of the hate, all of the messages that she's been receiving. So that's just one example. She, became, she was very public with the hate that she received. Um, but that's what happens when a woman decides to assert control over her own body. You, we are not allowed to have bodily autonomy. This is why I said the reason for hijab, one of the reasons is victim blaming. Another reason is truly it's just a form of control. 
it's just a form of telling a woman you are lesser than and you need to remember that and this is going to be put on your head and put on your body as a constant reminder that you are different from men and that you have to wear this when men don't have to wear this so you know it's 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 not just imprisonment it's not just honor killings it's not just you know those are the extreme cases um but those extreme cases happen all over the world, not just under theocracies. Mm. What was your family life like uh, growing up, Yasmin? Yeah, so, well, if we're going to relate it to hijab, I was put into hijab at nine years old, and then yeah, I was put into Nepal. coming for your, uh, for your bare head. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have an Islamophobia officer here in Canada now, so. <laughs> really? Yeah, we do. At the federal government level, she was given $85 million and a, and a whole cabinet, a whole office of, of people to to control Islamophobia in this country. So. Muslim against Islam. Well, this is the problem. Um, if we talk about the term Islamophobia, you know, my one of my biggest problems with the term is it hasn't been defined. There's a refusal this woman, Amira, has flat out refused on many occasions to differentiate between anti-Muslim bigotry and criticism of Islam. She oh. insists that they are one and the same. She calls the Charlie Hebdo journalists racist. Um, so she she conflates those two things on purpose. And then, unfortunately, this is the person that they chose to be the uh, special representative for the Office Against Islamophobia at the federal government level. So it, it's um, it's something that obviously ex-Muslims and reform Muslims are very concerned about and very angry about because we were not, um, nobody in Canada was consulted about this at all. Our prime minister just went ahead and appointed her and despite the hundreds and hundreds of people that have signed letters speaking up against her and giving very clear reasons why they're against not only her as an individual, but also the appointment in general, um, we're just being ignored. Canada's special representative on combating Islamophobia serves as a champion, advisor, expert, and representative to the Canadian government. So this is a this is just for about Islamoph Islamophobia. What I, I assume you when you said it, that this would be an umbrella position, which is an anti-bigotry position that would include Islamophobia. So, is there an anti-Semitism special representative? No, there isn't. <laughs> there isn't a special representative for any of the other religions. So this is obviously in a country like Canada, where I don't even know how many religions we have represented in our country, to just choose one religion to have, literally, she's called a special representative, for any one religion to have this this special space is completely unfair. Um, and well, especially, I mean, a secular country, too, like, it's just, frightening towards the idea of freedom of speech and freedom of criticism correct. of religion. Uh, if you're potentially if you're implying that people who are going to criticize a set of theological claims could be bigots because they are criticizing theological claims rather than throwing, as you say, throwing slurs at, at people. I mean, let's, let's just unpick that before I want to get to your backstory as well. Cause I think it's really interesting, but uh, I mean, it, that is, this is key because it's happening in all kinds of areas and 
Islam is just one piece of a larger jigsaw here where people's people's beliefs, ideas, criticisms, personal opinions, political points of view are getting coded as hate speech or bigotry when those terms really should be limited to language that's directed at human beings, at individuals. It happens with LGBTQI plus stuff as well, right? You know, Mm -hmm. transphobic hate can be saying that uh, you believe that there's something unique to the experience of women in growing up as a girl. And that opinion Mm. can be bigotry. But I thought bigotry was like bigotry towards individual human beings or like, you know, someone could say that the state of Israel shouldn't exist and they can be called an anti-Semite. Well, no, hang on. Mm -hmm. Anti-Semitism is like hating Jews as human beings, not an idea of an abstract idea of Zionism. And similarly, of course, we should stamp out anti-Muslim hate, meaning hatred Mm -hmm. towards Muslims as, as human beings. But to say that the Quran is a big load of hogwash, like, would that be something that Canada's special Envoy, special representative on combating Islamophobia would be curious to investigate? Yes. According to when she's been asked this question point blank numerous times, um, yes, she makes no differentiation between anti-Muslim bigotry, bigotry against Muslims as people, or criticism of the religion of Islam that she disagrees with um, in general. She she refuses to make a differentiation between those two things. Hmm. So saying that Islam is a is a conservative and degrading and sexist force in society and should be reformed that would be hate speech. Have a, have a yeah. reformation the way that Christianity has had. Yeah, could be considered hate speech. All That's right. right. And because it's so nebulous and because it's so subjective, people are just afraid to speak. Of course, <laughs> you know, that's what's happened. And so I, I just was in a conversation um, with this black woman from Toronto who was talking about slavery and how um, Christians enabled slavery in a lot of Africa. And then she's like, and another religion too, but I can't name it. And then we we were having like this coded conversation on Twitter because we're both Canadian. And so you just don't know, like, even if we state historical facts about how Arab Muslims were not only in the past involved in slavery of Africans, but currently are, you know, is that going to be something that's going to come back at us and be considered uh, Islamophobia? I mean, you know me, I don't care. (laughs) Mm. I would say whatever, but she did. And I was respecting that. And so um, you know, that's what happens. So people can't even speak about topics that are important to them or important to their history or important to their people because they have to make sure that, you know, none of it is misconstrued as Islamophobia. It's also just weird, yes, I mean, that it's the countries that are and the cultures and the societies that are the the most keen to self-flagellate over issues like slavery, that are the least willing to honestly discuss the human rights abuses of, uh, I don't know, cu- cultures and countries that they regard as being, I mean, what is it? What? Is, why is it? So, you know, I'm, I'm just alluding to the fact that the Arab slave trade was like 
twice as aggressive and lasted for twice as long as the transatlantic slave trade. And of course, this Canadian, the Canadian government is extremely keen to have a reckoning about the transatlantic slave trade and to discuss questions of compensation and, you know, truth and reconciliation around the descendants of the transatlantic slave trade. But if you say, so let's also grapple with the fact that Arab countries are sitting on top of at least as bad an experience of slavery and an even more recent one, then everyone starts fidgeting and feeling like that's not something that you're allowed to talk about. Is that like, what is going on there? That's exactly what's going on here. Yeah. It's, Why? It's, you know, that's, that's the question. That is the whole question. That is the reason why I started to speak out to begin with was because I found that whenever anybody would, would speak up about these things, they would be attacked for their innate characteristics. They, they would be told, you're a white, straight American male. Who are you to talk about the Arab slave trade? You're only talking about it because you're racist or because you're Islamophobic or whatever. And so whenever anybody would try to have this conversation, they would be attacked and silenced. And so that's why I felt as an Arab woman who grew up Muslim, maybe I can say these things which are cold hard facts you people like the, this is history this is this is happening right now there's a slave trade currently in libya right now buying and selling of of african people um why why can't we talk about this so at least because of my identity it's it allows me to push the conversation a little bit further with people who are just unwilling to have these conversations. But um, yeah, that doesn't deal with the crux of the problem of like this unwillingness to talk about it and, and how can we break those barriers and allow people to see that we're all human beings and we have, we all have to reconcile for many faults that we have in our histories and we cannot protect or ignore or refuse to acknowledge the faults of some groups of people because either a um this is the irony right here josh i'm going to tell you because i really do believe that the main reason why a lot of people don't want to speak up is because they are afraid of islamic terrorism because when the Charlie Hebdo cartoonists drew cartoons, what happened to them? When Salman Rushdie wrote a novel, what happened to him? You know, when Ayan Hirsi Ali did made a video or a, sorry, a, a short film with Theo Van Gogh, what happened to him? It goes on and on and on, right? If you criticize Islam publicly, there's going there there could be some sort of terrorism in your future. So. What's what's ironic here, what's interesting is these people that are screaming Islamophobia, they are the ones who are the most scared. They are the ones who truly are afraid of speaking up against Islam because they believe that there could be um, a response of terrorism. And they're very, it is a valid fear. I understand it. I mean, obviously I live in that space. I know that it's a valid fear, but I also know that, and I'm going to quote Salman Rushdie here. I also know that the best way to fight back is to refuse to be afraid 
because terrorism works. Terrorism is successful. Terrorism keeps people in line. And so all they have, like, you know, a few people dying in France or in England or in, you know, wherever is enough to keep everybody in line. Um, it's enough to get everybody to bite their tongue against criticism, uh, against Islam. And that's where people have to, this is where it becomes most dangerous, you know, because now you are capitulating to terrorism. And is that who you want to be? Is that what you want? Are you willing to give up your freedom of expression because bullies are forcing you to? You know, I think one of the greatest responses in France when a teacher named Samuel Petit was beheaded because he was sharing the Charlie Hebdo cartoons and they were having a conversation about free expression in his classroom. Um, So he was beheaded by, you know, people connected to the children in his classroom. Um, The response from a lot of France was to take those Charlie Hebdo cartoons and to just plaster them all over the city. And in fact, they, they were projecting those cartoons up on buildings. And I thought that was the most beautiful response. That's the way it should be. When people say yeah. to you, you are not allowed to have this free expression or we're going to terrorize you, the response should be, no, we will not be terrorized. We refuse to cower and we will continue to value free expression and we will continue to express ourselves freely. But unfortunately, that's not the response that you see normally. That is a plausible explanation, but also a, an overly cynical one to explain everything that's going on, I think. Because the 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 fear of what I see in, amongst my journalistic colleagues is a reflexive desire to be on the right side of culture war battles and to not be part of, quote unquote, the problem of like Western chauvinism and and bigotry uh, and xenophobia, and so in, I'm sure that there, I'm sure that part of it is that you don't want to be a target of Islamist violence, but part of it is also that there's something unseemly. Well, for a start, you don't it, you don't want it to seem like you're playing a game of whataboutism, so that every time people criticise the, you know, the sins of the European invasion of Australia or Canada and the plight of First Nations people, you just wave your arms about and go, yeah, but what about the Arabs with their slave trade? You know, you don't want to be that guy. So there's an instinct to not be that, to not do that. But then even if you are being even handed and saying, yes, we have to all acknowledge the challenges of our past, but let's not also gloss over the fact that this was this was a worldwide phenomenon and needs a global reckoning and we shouldn't be singled out for our own misdeeds, uh, you know, and gloss over those of others if that's an impediment to to true reconciliation between cultures and, and peoples. Um, the, but then, then there's also just this instinct that if you are in a, if you are a brown skinned person in a religious minority in a multicultural society, then we should really be spending our energy making you feel welcome and not nitpicking what's what might be wrong with your culture that's causing hardship overseas. Yeah, that's so right. I think that's. I, I do understand what you're saying, but I, I actually find that position to be very patronizing, to be very condescending. Oh, it yeah. And it's also very white centric. So when you were making this argument, for example, you were saying, 
okay, we can speak up against, you know, Christianity and sort of their impact in the slave trade, but let's not speak up against Islam because we don't want to be doing that whataboutism because that's those people over there as opposed to us over here. But the example that I was giving you was about a black Canadian woman. So from her perspective, she couldn't care less if it if you were Christian or if you were Muslim. You're both others and you're both slave traders. And so it 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 really depends on the perspective of the person who is speaking. For for there to be this idea that we can that it's always sort of the white person who's in the dominant position of of having the conversation and therefore we need to be um, careful when we're talking about the others, you know, um, that's not my perspective. <laughs> you not know, I, when I'm speaking, I'm not seeing myself as the other and I'm not seeing myself as white. And so that's really just depends on the speaker and their perspective. And I, when I'm speaking against Christianity or when I'm speaking up against Islam or when I'm speaking against whatever religion or ideology that I see is, is hurting people, um, I'm never seeing that from the perspective of an Arab Canadian woman. I'm just seeing it from the perspective of a human being, you know? Um, I mean, that so makes a lot of sense to me, to but the ideology that is so has become widespread in the past five years uh, in media and academia and broader culture is that the perpetrators of injustice are, are is a white well, I was going to say are white people, but is rather it usually gets framed as a white supremacist uh, power yeah. structure that we're all complicit in, right? So it's all very nice to say, oh, well, here is a, a woman of African descent in Canada who regards Arabs and white people as equal oppressors. But actually the narrative of most First Nations people in Australia and Canada and most African-American people in the United States would be that actually the the great sin is white European colonialism and white supremacy and yeah uh, I can I can see that perspective obviously if you're an indigenous Canadian or if you're an indigenous Australian then yes it would be the Europeans that are mostly to blame for your you know the current position um, that your people are having to to struggle in but again. That's back to my previous point of it really depends on the perspective of the person who's talking um, and what what their experience is. So I'm just I'm just trying to caution from saying that, you know, this is the way it is. Like, I understand that's the way it is in your perspective, like from where you're standing, it is common for white people or white supremacists to be blamed for all the ills in the world. I understand that's your context and that's your perspective. That's not my context and that's not my perspective because in the work that I do, there are like no white people involved in the work that I do. It's mostly either theocratic, you know, theocratic nations, theocracies, law enforcement, government, education, or it is, misogyny it is men in general and sometimes women actually um patriarchy so it's dealing with fgm and child marriage and um forced hijab and and honor killings and and things like that 
So it really just depends on who you are and, and what's the fight that you're fighting and what is your perspective and who you're seeing as the bad guy. I mean, unfortunately, we don't live in a Disney movie and the bad guys don't all wear black hats and the good guys all wear white hats. I think we're all wearing gray hats, to be honest. And I think that, um, yes, to have the conversation for in the West, from the Western perspective, I can understand them saying we only want to criticize us because we are the dominant majority and then criticizing any other groups is punching down because they're the minority. I fine. I I understand your perspective. But when that becomes toxic is when someone like me or someone like the millions of other people who are actually coming from Muslim majority communities because let's not forget Islam is the second largest religion on the planet. It's not a tiny little minority group like People in the West like to pretend that it is. Um, when people like us start to speak up against our oppressors, they look at us from the same lens that they're looking at themselves. They're judging us by the same, you know, whatever spectrum they're using to judge themselves. And they think that for us to speak up also makes us punching down. It's like, uh, no, we are very much punching up. Yeah. Yeah, it's like the problem of being a minority inside a minority in yeah. in a culture where everybody is trying to defer to the wishes of the quote-unquote minority without seeing that there's another minority inside the minority that's being impressed, yeah. oppressed by that minority. <laughs> and in actual yeah. fact, sometimes to defer to the minority just means to defer to the loudest person. The in majority. That, in that, <laughs> yeah, in the, the majority of the minority yeah. or, the loudest, or the loudest bully inside that uh, majority, you know, the, the imam with the loudest loudspeaker and the best connections uh, who may be exactly. riding roughshod over the 15 year old girls in his, uh, in his community. Let's talk about your early life. I don't want to, I don't want to leave that. I hadn't realized that, that your great uncle was the president of Egypt. Is that right? Yeah, it's, uh, my, yes, my great uncle, my mom's uncle. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what yeah, was growing up president like of Egypt. I mean, he was there for a short amount of time, but yes. Mm. Uh, where'd you grow up and what were your parents like? So I grew up in Vancouver, BC. Um, by the time I was born, my family, like my parents' uh, marriage had already dissolved. Uh, it was the third. There was my sister first, who was born in San Francisco, and then my brother and I that were both born in Canada. Um, and when I was about five or six years old, my mom, who was feeling lonely and, you know, looking for a community and a support system in Canada, went to the local mosque, not because she's at the time, not because she was religious or anything, but just because she was looking for, I don't know, other Arab speakers or something. And um, that's where she met this Egyptian man who was a fundamentalist Muslim and he was already married and already had three kids, but he took my mom on as his concurrent second wife. And that's when my life changed. That's when everything went from, you know, pre him joining our lives. It was playing with my friends, um, you know, down the hallway in the same apartment building Chelsea and Lindsay, we'd have our Barbies and we'd all play together. We'd go swimming, we'd go bike riding, we'd 
go to birthday parties, you know, we'd listen to music. We just have the life of regular kids. And once he joined our family, it was like, all of that is haram. All of that is forbidden. So suddenly he was, um, breaking my mom's records. My mom used to love listening to a lot of country music. So she had like Dolly Parton and Kenny Rogers and he would broke all her records and he sat us down on the carpet in front of him and tried to encourage us to break her records too. And she just stood there and let him take over our lives. She at he, the same time was undergoing a kind of a, a born again experience or, I mean, was she becoming exactly that? That yeah. is exactly what happened. She became a, a born again Muslim. Her family in Egypt were like surprised and horrified at what was going on with her. Suddenly she's putting a hijab on. She's studying Sharia at Al-Azhar University. Sharia meaning uh, Islamic law. And when and you say that her family University. in Egypt were horrified, this is because they were secular in Egypt and they thought, oh, she's uh-huh. out off there in Canada leading this classic Canadian, uh, you know, modern lifestyle. And all of a sudden she hooks up with someone who seems more retrograde than the people that they would be associating with even in Egypt. Exactly. So at that time in Egypt, um, religion was pretty much relegated to the villages, to the, to the, to the uneducated, you know, like progress was all like Cairo, all of those cities, right? Iran, even Kabul and Afghanistan, like all these cities were progressing. But the, the big shift happened when the Islamists took over in Iran So once the Islamic Republic of Iran was established and they started uh, forcing hijab on the women and all that, that was kind of the beginning of this Islamist explosion um, that spread all across the Middle East. So my mom's life followed that same trajectory. So she was secular before this, all of her family were secular before this, and then in the early 80s, um, you see a very vast difference. Um, well, maybe not in the early eighties, but throughout the eighties, you see this just insurgence of, of, uh, Islamists everywhere. And suddenly hijab is a lot more prevalent. Suddenly people are going to the mosque a lot more. So like I was saying earlier before that, um, religion was more relegated to the villages, um, not it, what you weren't really seeing a lot of religious conversations or religious clothing in the big cities. Um, but after this Islamist growth, it, you see it everywhere. So Egypt went from, uh, so there's this video in the fifties with Abdel Nasser, who was the president at the time, the Muslim brotherhood who were, you know, the first group of, of Islamists, when they went to him and they asked him to force all the women in Egypt to wear hijab, he started laughing at them. And then every, all the men in parliament started laughing as well. They thought it was such a joke. Like, oh my God, can you imagine trying to tell Egyptian women what to wear? Like, ha ha ha. Mm. Um, and then of course, by the eighties and nineties now, easily 90% of women in Egypt are, are in hijab and we do have a 10% Christian population. So pretty much every Muslim woman is, is in hijab there. And that is an, a physical, like that's a, a visual indication 
for for how religious the society has become. Mm. So my mom went through that exact same. She followed the exact same timeline. Um, so she met this guy when I guess it must have been 80, uh, 81. And, um, and then she started to become more religious. She, she was ahead of the curve. She was ahead of the rest of her family. And initially they were like, what? We can't believe that she's going to start wearing hijab because my mom was all about mini skirts and she wanted to move to San Francisco. And her and my dad were all about the peace, love and hippie era. So like, they just couldn't believe this shocking difference in this woman. Um, but soon after they all followed suit. Now all of my aunts are in hijab and all my cousins in niqab too, which cover, which means a covering of their face. Um, so yeah, it, it, it spread very effectively all over the country and all over the entire region. Mm. And you, meanwhile, in Canada, start going to an Islamic school uh, at a mosque and mm-hmm. start being abused? Uh, well, the abuse started before I started going to the Islamic school. Um, but yeah, so I started going to an Islamic school. And um, so that's, it was like this really clear separation between us and them at that point. So you can't be friends with the non-believers anymore. Um, so you're going to an Islamic school and it was more uh, effective in separating us from the rest of the Canadian society because we were in a, in a completely... Um, you were just in a bubble. They call it a separatist society in, in France and in the UK these days, um, because that's a very common thing that happens because people in the West or Western government seem to think that it's, it's on them when the integration of Muslims doesn't happen into their countries. But what they fail to realize is that it's a two-way street and a lot of fundamentalist Muslims do not want to integrate into your countries. They want to take advantage of the what's available, you know, the safety, the freedom, the education, the, you know, whatever. Um, but they don't want to um, tarnish their children with the ideas of liberalism and equality and, you know, women's rights and LGBTQ rights and things like that. So, so they want to keep a separation between the mm. and know, long story short, you, you experienced this firsthand because the police yes. were told about your dad abusing you, and that went to court. But uh, your sense my stepdad, your stepdad, yeah, yeah my, but, my my own father never never laid a hand on me. Um, he, no, him correct. and my mom but divorced. The point yeah, that there was this this uh, I guess a. A hypocrisy in the in the way that you saw the Canadian justice system deal with you versus what you imagine would have happened if you were a nice white girl because you were from a community where this sort of thing happens and the community has the exactly. right to do things. Yeah, so it was the moral and cultural relativism that I was, you know, introduced to at the age of 13. So what had happened was when I, one of my teachers alerted the authorities about the abuse that was happening to me at home. Um, you know, it went through a whole bunch of steps, went through the police, child services, this and that. And then eventually in, in, in family court, the judge ruled that, um, because my family 
is from Egypt and because my family is Muslim or because my family is from a different culture, that this is just the way that they express disciplining their children. It might be different than the way the average Canadian might discipline their children, but this is their culture and this is their business. And so um, he didn't take me out of that home. And, And so as I was expressing in my book, what he was essentially telling me was, you know, had your parents been from Denmark or Germany or China or France, then yeah, I would have protected you. But because you happen to be coming from this culture and this is how they insist is normal um, for how they discipline kids, then that's their business because that's your culture. So you're just, you know, shit out of luck. So yeah, it was a very dark time. And continued to be dark as you, I mean, you were wearing the niqab when when you were a young woman, you got married to an extremist. Yeah. So I was, I was forced into a marriage with an extremist because as my mother said, quote, we had to find a man who was strong enough to control you. Um, And so they chose more than an extremist. They chose a terrorist. He was an Al Qaeda terrorist um he's in prison in Egypt now but you know at the time this was pre 911 and uh i knew he had been in afghanistan before he came to canada but they convinced me that he was a paramedic driving a uh, red crescent bus and that he was helping people and that he wasn't involved in any terrorism but of course eventually the truth came out when i was contacted by the Canadian intelligence um, when they told me who I was actually married to. Wow. And what opened yeah, your eyes? So, was it going to university and and learning? I mean, where or was it a slow and gradual experience? At what at what point did you realize this whole it was thing is untenable? Um, I think that it was it was in stages. So first of all, I had a daughter with him, and he was talking about taking my daughter to Egypt to get FGM performed on her. You mean genital mutilation? Yes, Not everybody correct. is Female genital. the lingo of FGM. Yeah, yeah, sorry. So they were talking about, well, when she's, you know, five or six years old, we'll take her to Egypt and we'll get it done. And that was my first moment of realization that, okay, I need to get out of this. I mean, I had nothing but a high school education and I had, I was cut off completely isolated from my friends or anybody who I could go to for support. But I knew that I had to somehow get myself and my daughter out of that situation. I just didn't have a plan. Um, eventually through a long series of sorted events, I was able to get myself and my daughter out of that house Um, away from him first level, and then away from my family is the second level. And then when her and I were finally alone, that's when I was able to start going to university. And I do, although I just finished trashing the Canadian government a moment ago, (laughs) I will say that I am very, very grateful to have been in Canada, because if it wasn't for them, uh, I wouldn't have been able to get student loans and to go to university, and I wouldn't have been able to better myself. And so I did do that and I went to university and one of the courses that I took in university 
was called The History of Religions. And it basically focused on the three monotheistic religions. And the reason why I took that course really was because I thought, oh, this will be an easy A. My mom was the head of the Islamic Studies Department at the Islamic School, and she made sure that we understood the religion inside and out. And so I knew that at least a third of the curriculum I would ace. And so I thought, okay, I'll just take this course, not knowing that that course was going to change my life. Now, while I'm in university taking this course, 9-11 happened. So it was a simultaneous, you know, both intellectual and emotional disruption that by the end of that year, um, I didn't want to call myself a Muslim anymore, but I honestly didn't know that that was an option. I thought that the what you could be was just a non-practicing Muslim. So, um, cause they, they really do. It's crazy for me to think about this now, but you really get raised with the belief that being a Muslim is an, is an innate part of who you are. Mm. Um, and the option of, of not being a Muslim was like saying, I don't want to be, I mean, I don't want to be five foot six anymore. Do you know what I mean? It's like, you can want that all you (laughs) It seems like there's no consensus about which ethnicities are also religions and which religions are also ethnicities because Jews do that. Uh, I mean, right. there there is definitely a sense of, uh, you know, I'm a secular Jew, but I don't think I can, I'm not sure I, it's possible for me to disown my Jewishness in any more of a way yeah. that it's possible for me to disown my I guess being a member of the LGBTQIA plus community, which is like a term that I don't like and a community that I don't feel affinity with, but it's just a biological reality of my life that I'm married to a male. And so therefore, mm-hmm. you know, like, yeah, but then you would never say that of a Catholic. I mean, of course a Catholic yeah. can stop being a Catholic, uh, yeah. or, you know, an Episcopalian or something. Um, and uh, yeah, maybe Islam sits somewhere in between, depending on the eye of the beholder. Well, they, they don't, but they like to act like they do. So this is why. So the thing is with, with, um, obviously being part, being gay is who you are. That is an innate part of who you are. It's like saying I'm a man or I'm a woman or I have whatever big lips or I'm big feet, but, um, being Jewish also fits because it really is a tribe. I know obviously there's, it's, it's a, it's a tribe of that has grown and there's lots of different um, groups within that tribe, but it's still one tribe. Whereas with Muslims, there is no tribe. It's, it is more parallel to Christianity or in that, People from all over the world, so like you could be Somali, Indonesian, Saudi Arabian, uh, Afghani, and you're all Muslim, but you all speak different languages, you all have completely different cultures, you all have completely different histories, like you're, there's nothing that connects you except for the fact that of this religion. So that's more like Christians or more like Catholics and that yeah. you're, you know, you're not going to look at a, a Catholic from Mexico and a a Catholic person from Italy and think that they have anything more in common, that they are, that they're part right. of the same tribe. I mean, so maybe, they, you know I mean? maybe Ara- Arabs and Persians are our groupings that are closer to Jews in that respect than Muslim. Yes, yeah. absolutely correct. Yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, yeah, okay, there's tons uh, of different kinds of Arabs, but that's the one 
umbrella term is Arab. Now that we've established your your biography and people understand where you're coming from, <laughs> let's loop back. Let's let let's loop back to the, the the sort of first question, which is like where we kind of are in our thinking about about Islam. One thing, one interesting thing that has happened since uh, we last spoke is that you know, since I'm on the subject of gay mar- of, of gayness, gay marriage has been legalized across uh, most of uh, the rich world. And mm-hmm. one interesting thing in Australia was Australia was one of the few countries that put it to a vote instead of just passing it as an act of parliament or having it uh, decided mm. in courts. Um, so there was a national plebiscite, an election uh, on yes or no, and it passed with more than 70%. But there was a lot of head scratching and supposed bafflement that the big cities were not as in favour of gay marriage as people had anticipated that they would be because the media elite thinks that they are everybody and that the <laughs> the latte-sipping, chardonnay-swilling uh, progressive lefties who live in the centre of uh, Sydney and Melbourne are everywhere. But, of course, the vast, sprawling suburbs of Sydney and Melbourne are full of lots of families who come from cultures where homosexuality is not cool at all. And mm-hmm. you know, that's, I'm not just talking about Muslim cultures. There are also mm-hmm. large swathes of uh, Southwest Sydney where there were uh, Chinese Australians who were not crazy about gay marriage, but, you know, significant. I mean, it was a very statistically significant factor. The fact that you had Muslim suburbs in Sydney and Melbourne voting no and for some reason, this took people by surprise, as if yeah. like everybody who is an oppressed minority has to be on the same page as the university-educated white elite progressive vanguard of of woke uh, thought. And I just wonder what you make of that and how you wrestle with that moving forward. Yeah, so that that is a really frustrating thing that that tends to happen quite a bit, and that's because they're confusing the person's identity with their ideas. And so, yes, Muslim people will vote left or vote Democrat quite often because they're coming from minority groups, and that's where they're going to feel the most um, protected or the most safe or the most looked after are, are from the left. But the truth is that their ideas align much more with the conservative Christians on the right. That's where they're going to, that's where the alignment happens. Yes, the, obviously the anti-LGBTQ LGBTQ stuff, the, um, the anti-women stuff, you know, the, the whole traditional trad wife. I don't know if that's a big thing in, in Australia, but that's a that huge like thing that? over here. Is that a is that a, a Christian thing or is that a yes? It's a, it's a Christian thing about how a traditional wife needs to you know her her role in this world is to serve her husband and to make babies and it just sounds like Islam. It's just right. it's, no, I haven't seen it here, but so I've seen similar. it on media from in in the U.S. It seems yeah, it's yeah. quite interesting. Yeah, and also the their shared love of anti-Semitism. Like there's a lot of things that they have in common in their ideas. Hating the Jews um, but be- is the uniter, I find. It's historically, yeah, yeah. it brings people together. Unfortunately, true, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, yeah, because that's being seen on the left as well. So, but but what I mean to say is that they really do, because they are religious conservatives, What I mean, it just makes sense that they would be, Align their ideas would be aligned together, but people start to get confused 
um, because they, like you said, they assume that all minority groups, just because they vote left or just because they vote Democrat, that that means that they agree with those ideas on the left, but they most certainly do not. And, you know, that can be illustrated by the fact that 15 Muslim majority countries will kill people just for being gay. You get executed for that crime. Hmm. I also saw you joking on uh, Twitter about a, a video of a couple of guys trying to eat a kebab, which was uh, <laughs> and I thought it was hilarious. Uh, the, the the relationship between masculinity and yeah. homoeroticism and yeah. homophobia in highly masculinized sexist cultures like uh, yeah. conservative Islam, can you explain it? to me like you walk around i remember being in egypt i was in egypt just before the revolution i mean you know the last revolution uh and was quite struck by how kind of gay the guys seemed to behave with each other in the most conservative (laughs) mosques what's that all about yeah yeah um I'm going to be honest with you, because of the gender segregation, most people's first sexual experience is with somebody of the same sex, just because that's who they have access to. Right. Um, like so that's English quite a common environment or something. Uh, sorry, what was that? Like an English private school environment or something. Yes. Or a prison. Yeah. 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 So, I, I mean, I don't know that... Uh, I mean, I, 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 I don't actually, it's, it's any kind of society that suppresses sexuality to the extent that it is suppressed in Muslim majority countries is just a hot spot. It's, it's, it's just a, a hotbed of, 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 I mean, it's not, I don't even know how to say this. Like it's, in, in Muslim-majority countries, there is the outside voice and there is the inside voice. So if you look at countries like Saudi Arabia, for example, men and women are completely separated. Men are dressed completely in white. Women are dressed completely in black. They like to create this um, vision that, like, just visually you look at it and you think, wow, these people are so pious. They're, they're so uh, whatever. But the truth is that the the kinds of stuff that's happening in the underworld in these countries is i mean it's just beyond like i'm not they they're not even necessarily gay or not gay it's it's not even a sexuality it's just insanity so one of the examples i'll give is the culture of bachabazi in afghanistan where they take young boys and they dress them up as girls and they put makeup on them and then they rape them. It is, it is an actual part of their culture. So I don't know if these men would necessarily be pedophiles, rapists, or gay or whatever they would identify as. I think that it's just created like this, this, this sexual repression where, um, yeah, it just ends up mm. be becoming really unhealthy and, and very toxic. Right, right. And, I mean, even quite apart from any any actual behaviour, 
I mean, I was just sort of pointing to the the cultural. I guess anytime there's a highly macho, sexist, bro kind of culture, and this could be in like a a, a rugby club <laughs> as well. You know, there there just does become this kind of bromantic sort of. Yeah expression of masculinity that borders on the uh yeah borders on the homoerotic um so that's that's that let me uh let me also pick your brain about afghanistan and pakistan and and uh iraq i mean i saw that you're being literally the pakistani government is trying to take your tweets down and your tweets are being banned in pakistan for causing offense Mm -hmm. to islam this is Mm -hmm not an encouraging this is no i'm just so used to it by now (laughs) it's hilarious like i'm not pakistani you have absolutely no control over me i'm not a pakistani citizen i've never been to pakistan i do not plan on ever going to pakistan but it's just funny how they have a temper tantrum trying to control women across the planet um, because i was tweeting with another woman about the misogyny under islam and so they felt that that was so offensive it needed to be hidden off of twitter from from pakistani eyes this is the uh this is the scandalous uh cartoon that you tweeted so this yeah. is the the, t- the the cartoon has a woman who seems to be ripping the quran in half maybe that's the offensive thing i'm not sure but the caption says mm-hmm. Since I left Islam, I discovered that I'm more powerful and this religion had me believe. I'm not worth half of a man, nor less intelligent than a man. No man has the right to beat me or rape me. I was lied to. And you write the caption, what are some of your favorite parts of being ex-Muslim? Share the biggest to the smallest joys. One of my biggest is learning to trust myself, recognizing my value, loving myself, knowing that no man has a right to beat me or rape me, no matter what some dusty old book says. And that was so offensive that Twitter sent you a warning saying, in the interest of transparency, we're writing to inform you that Twitter has received a request from PTA regarding your Twitter account that claims the following content violates the laws of Pakistan. And then links to that. That violates the laws of Pakistan. And and Twitter capitulates to that and takes it down in Pakistan. Yep, yep. This is why I have Pakistani people writing to me privately all the time. They cannot publicly retweet or like my tweets. They can't publicly support the women in Iran who are, who are, you know, protesting against their government there. They cannot publicly speak their mind because um, the actual telecom company of Pakistan that control like that they are getting access to the internet from is what is controlling their um their speech or controlling their clicks so if they were to click like on one of these things they would lose access on their phones to the internet from this telecom company so it's really very controlling and 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 they are just drunk on that control and so they're trying to extend it even beyond Pakistan. What's the biggest challenge for you and your work at the moment? Staying positive, I think, is the biggest challenge. Uh, Continuing to do this work and feeling like um, I'm not screaming into a a dark, empty chasm and things are moving forward and things are progressing. That's why I have my 
podcast called Forgotten Feminists, where I speak to different women who have overcome. That really helps to to feed my optimism. Um, And obviously my work with Free Hearts, Free Minds is incredibly rewarding um, because then we're actually changing lives one life at a time, but you know, you, you feel like you're actually contributing something positive Mm. to the world. Um, Yeah. So it's, it's hard to stay positive with all the darkness out there, but sometimes there's good news. I don't know if you noticed today, I tweeted about a woman, uh, Yasaman in Iran, who was imprisoned by the Iranian government in 2018 because she was not wearing hijab in public. And then her mother, this is the just the heartbreaking story. Her mother said, well, if you're going to arrest my daughter, I'm also going to walk around without hijab and then you can arrest me too so that I can be with her. And so the two of them have spent since 2018, they've been in prison together and they were just released. So that was a, you know, wow. some happy news for today. Extraordinary. Then uh, on coming back to the very first question that I asked, like are things better or worse in the West than they were seven years ago? Why were you optimistic mm-hmm. initially? Your initial response was, yeah. Why? Yeah. Well, I think it is getting better because we are getting our voices out there a lot more than we were able to before. I think prior to social media, people were limited to uh, the powerful voices, the ones that had the microphones, the ones who had access to getting on CNN or BBC. Like they, their their voices mattered. Their perspectives mattered. But the rest of us were just hidden and shut up. Um, but with a lot of social media campaigns that we've had over the past seven years, the main one starting with Masi Alinejad from Iran, she started a, a hashtag called My Stealthy Freedom. And it was about these women that were secretly posting them pictures of themselves without hijab. And quite often it would just be the back of their heads because they didn't want their faces on social media, but they wanted to like feel a, a tiny sense of freedom. And when that happened, like that was like 2017, 2018, that was like mind blowing for me. Like I just, it was, it was, I could not believe that these women were doing this. Like their bravery was just beyond. And then there were women in Saudi Arabia that were posting videos of them burning their niqabs, um, stepping on the Quran, like all sorts of these pictures and videos were coming on social media, shared with our hashtag free from hijab. Um, we have no hijab day on February 1st. So we have all of these campaigns where we're like encouraging people to speak up against the, the tyranny that they're living under. And because you no longer feel alone, like, you know, if you read my book, you probably got the sense that I felt very isolated. I felt very scared Mm. because I felt very alone. And so one little tiny voice, you know, it's too scary to speak up. So you just bite your tongue. But because we're all out here on social media supporting each other and sharing each other's videos and pictures and stories, um, it motivates others to to also share. And then you notice the swell of people in all of these countries that are so unhappy and they've been silenced for so long. So I think when their voices started to get louder, 
obviously with what's happened in Iran that like nothing could have been more clear to the world. Mm. Um, that has really helped to change the, the dominating perspective before that, that people were quiet in these countries because they were happy or because they were fine with it. Um, yeah. So in my organization, the two groups that we help the most are ex-Muslims, so people, free thinkers, people who have denounced Islam and people from the LGBT community, because they're, that's another group of people who will be executed for their crime of being gay. And you never used to hear from them before, because of course, the last thing in the world they want to do is to be public. Yeah. Um, but we had some examples like this young woman in Egypt who at a concert held up a a rainbow flag. And of course she was arrested for it. And luckily she was able to seek asylum in Canada, but she, after that committed suicide because she was so, she wrote a letter describing about how sad she was to leave her country. She wanted to stay in, in, sorry, she wanted to stay in Egypt and fight and help her country to progress. But instead she was forced to go to this cold country in the North where she didn't know the culture or the language or the people. And, um, and, and so, you know, it was, it was an incredibly sad story, but it brought attention. And every year we remember her um, and we talk about her again, and it brings attention to the fact that there are so many people suffering quietly because if they open their mouth, then they're, they're risking their lives or, you know, if they're not going to be executed, then there's like you were saying before, there's all sorts of other risks that they're taking, like what happened to, to yeah. Sarah. Yeah. So I yes, think social yeah. media has really helped to bring our voices out there. I think that's why I think it's, I feel it's getting better. It's, it's, uh, it's so good to talk to you again. I want to ask you some first date questions, which we always end with, which is just a collection okay. of completely random questions for like a Rorschach uh, test to get to know you better, uh, like okay. the worst, first date of your life. What's the, what's the best meal that you've had? Okay. The best meal, this is going to be like the most lame answer, but the very first time, <laughs> the very first time. <laughs> so I had an asparagus soup in a French restaurant and it was my very first time having French food. And I remember that clearly. I was like in grade six or something. My dad was living in Montreal and we went to a French restaurant and it was like the most divine food I had ever tasted. So oh, wow. that to me is my memory. Yeah. Fantastic. Did you go and visit uh, from Vancouver? Did you go to Montreal much? Uh, I have been to Montreal and I've also been to France and I've had food in actual France. So yes, it lives up to all the hype. Real France, uh, not just Canadian France. <laughs> Real uh, France, not the fake Canadian uh, France. Not the Canadian <laughs> France, although that's very charming as well. Uh, I love Montreal. What, uh, what appliance in your house is the most aggravating? That is where we will leave the wonderful Yasmin Muhammad uh, on the free uh, subscription. If you want to pay for a subscription, then you get that and so much more. You get additional bonus content. You get premium episodes. You get, depending on your tier, even one-on-one Zoom cocktail chatters with uh, yours truly. Uh, uncomfortableconversation.substack.com slash subscribe for all that. And if you are a paying uh, subscriber and you're hearing this, then you need to go to uncomfortableconversations.substack.com slash listen to generate your own personalized premium uh, 
our podcast feed. Enjoy. Thank you.